Welcome to Crime Soup Podcast. I'm Hannah Kanapis. And I'm Kaylee. And this week we'll be discussing the bizarre death of a 30-year-old Wisconsin woman from 1993. Her husband claims it was suicide, but many believe he got away with murder. This is the story of Jane Ellen Newman. So Jane Newman was a 30-year-old woman found shot to death at her home in Hudson, Wisconsin in 1993. So Jane is 30 years old, and she's married to a man named Jim. They got married in 1988, and they had a, a little son named Jonathan who was born in 1992, who at this time, he is just a few months shy of his second birthday. So some reports you'll read, they'll say that they had a two-year-old. Technically, he hadn't turned two yet, but it's really annoying as a parent to be like, I've got a 21-month-old, you know? So, <clears throat> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. How old is he? He's 473 months old. <laughs> Damn. Is he cashing his social security yet? <laughs> Just kidding. I don't know how many months. Are <laughs> I don't know either. So, I'll reiterate. So, Jane and Jim had been married for five years. They've got a not-quite-two-year-old son named Jonathan. And both Jane and Jim both worked full-time. She worked for a mortgage company, and he worked for a medical supply company. He specifically was in charge of their computers. Every account that I can find of her, she's just like a doll. Like, she's just sweet, outgoing. No one has anything negative to say about her. So... With the mortgage mortgage company, I don't think it's that she's passionate about mortgages. I think she's just really good with people. That's that sounds fair. Um, yeah. Are they well off? That sounds like they're in two well paying positions. Honestly, so we'll get into that. Oh, okay. Jane and Jim both work full time jobs. Um, so Jonathan goes to daycare. They do live in a really nice house. I would say that they live in a nice neighborhood. But if you look it up on Google, it is a nice area, but. It's a, it's a tiny bit remote in the sense that it's not a typical suburb where you just have neighbors like right next to each other with just a fence. It's more like they have a big plot of land and there's tons of trees. And so they're not remote, but they are a little bit isolated. I don't know how to describe it. I think a lot of people would consider that really nice. Like, they've got a decently <laughs> long driveway. They've got a decent big plot of land. Their property is outlined with tons of trees. So they actually, they do have neighbors nearby, but it's like you wouldn't be able to see them. That sounds nice. Like, it's kind of forested. Yeah. Right? Um, it's really common to see this where I grew up in Portland, right? Tons of trees. You can't even see your neighbors, but they're there. So they live in a nice house in a nice area of Hudson, Wisconsin. It's really close to the St. Croix River, which divides Wisconsin from, I'm blanking, Minnesota? Yes. So <laughs> I am not good with geography, not, especially Wisconsin and Minnesota. I almost said she's not a geologist, but that's not the same thing at all. So here we are. <laughs> Actually, I am a geologist. No. So... 
Hudson, like downtown Hudson, is right on the St. Croix River and like right across the river is Minnesota. So there's tons of waterways, tons of rivers, tons of lakes. Even though they had these nice jobs and they had a nice house, just like any couple, Jane and Jim had their difficulties. They had a significant amount of debt and Jim states after his wife's death that Jane struggled with bulimia, but their plan was to have at least one more child and everyone who talked to Jane said that she was really excited about having another baby. So does it say why they were in so much debt? No, I couldn't find it anywhere. Maybe if I maybe if I kept digging, but based on everything that I read, they had I mean, their debt was their mortgage. They had their mortgage was about one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars, which doesn't sound like a lot. But this is also the 90s. So I don't know what the conversion rate is in Wisconsin. So that counts for something, too. I have no idea. So all I know is that at the time in 1993, they had a mortgage that was $125,000. And then they had just miscellaneous debt that I don't know where it's from of $40,000. Oh, that's actually a lot. Yeah. Maybe like uh, school? That's what I, I was trying to think about it. Like maybe school, maybe they bought a brand new car. But even then, back in the 90s, I don't think a car would be that much. But it's probably a combination of things. Yeah, yeah. Basically, I mean, they have a nice lifestyle, so it could have come from anywhere. Yeah. So our story begins on a Monday morning, which is the worst of the mornings. And this is three days before Thanksgiving. So this is November 22nd, 1993. You weren't even born yet. I was still cooking. Yeah, you were were in the womb. Yeah. (laughs) According to her husband, Jim, Jane got up for work about 6.30 in the morning on November 22nd, 1993, just as she always did. After she left for work, Jim got up, got their son, Jonathan, ready, and took him to daycare before heading to work himself. And I guess this was just their typical routine. So Jane got up early. She worked... I'm guessing from about 7 to 3. And Jim, I don't know what time he went to work, but I'm guessing his may have been more of like a 9 to 5. Did the daycare uh, people corroborate that he normally dropped off their son? As far as I can tell, there was nothing out of the ordinary that morning. Okay. So then we're going to jump into how that day went. First, I'm going to talk about this according to Jim, and then we'll talk about different witnesses. So according to Jim, Jane called him two different times that afternoon. He claims that when Jane called him the first time, she told him she wanted to play him a song and proceeded to play him Please Forgive Me by Brian Adams. What do you the know heck? that song? No. I th- you probably do. Please forgive me. I know not what I do. Please forgive me. I can't stop loving you. I might have heard it, but I, that does not sound familiar to me. Okay, so... Well, that's weird. <laughs> that's what he claims happens, is that his wife Jane called him. He, I can't find anywhere that he says what time this happened. All he says is that his wife called him two different times that day. So the first time she calls and says, I want to play you a song, which I think is supposed to be like some sort of like romantic gesture. And she plays him Please Forgive Me by Brian Adams. Apparently on this same phone call, Jane also told Jim that when she was out walking earlier that day, her purse strap broke. And I think it was a relatively new purse. And so she told him that she was planning on going to TJ Maxx that day to see if they would issue a replacement, like a re- well, yeah, get a new purse, Yeah, even though she didn't have the receipt still. Did they normally, like, call each other throughout the day and talk like this? I don't know. It sounds like she was just really social in general, so I don't doubt it. 
Like, we're going to talk about more witnesses. It seems like she talked to a lot of people that day. What year did you say this happened? I forgot. 93. 93, okay. So, according to Jim, she then supposedly called a second time. This time he says it was about 3.30 p.m. This is what he says happens. Allegedly, she arrived home. So this is after work, right? She arrives home after work, but she notices that something is wrong with their garage door. So she calls Jim at the office to tell him. He says he advised her to hang up the phone, go get a better look at the door, and then call him back with more details so he could be of better help to her. She also told him that she found another door open. But Jane never called him back. Okay, hold on. So... She calls her husband and she says, there's something weird with the garage door. Also, there's a door open in the house. And he's like, go get a better look at the garage door and then I'll help you fix it. But there's nothing about the open door to their house. Well, I'm assuming, I don't think it was the front door. And I don't have, this is what I assumed and I don't know if it's true or not. I think maybe her normal way of getting into the house is through the garage. Mm-hmm. There, I know a ton of people where they they drive up, they click their garage door clicker, the door opens, they park in the garage, and then they go in through a side door into their house. Yeah. Right? Super yeah. common. Yeah. What I think maybe she meant by that she found a door open was that, like, don't worry, I'm still able to get into the house. Oh. Like, the side door is unlocked. But I don't know. That's okay. what I thought maybe happened. That makes sense. But also my my brain immediately went to, he was the last one to leave the house that day. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, and so he would have known if he had left the door unlocked or wide open, I guess, mm-hmm. and would have been able to say, oh, that was just me. Or that's weird. I don't remember doing that. Or I thought I locked that door. Yeah. And that's the problem is like, that's literally, it's just like one line. And I don't know if it's just like a cast off sentence that doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Or if it's like deeply significant. (laughs) We don't know. (laughs) But this is, I'm just relaying what was in the court documents. So again, she says she found another door open. Whether or not that means unlocked or like open, no idea. Okay. So Jim is at work. And according to him, he's saying that he tells her to call him back and she just never does. According to Jim, he then becomes worried after she doesn't call him back, so she he tries calling their home landline multiple times, but all he gets is the answering machine. And I'm going to tell you right now, Jim is tech savvy. He works with computers. Uh, later in life, he actually ends up moving to Seattle and gets a job for Microsoft. Mm. And I don't know how common it was, and I am not tech savvy, so maybe someone listening can let us know, but I don't know how common it is, but apparently he had his phone lines set up so that he could call his house from anywhere. And I don't know if it was a special number or if he dialed a voicemail or something, but he could call his own house and he could listen in. What? Yeah. Wait, wait. He could listen to what was happening in the house? Yes. Did the phone like have to be off the line? I have no idea. That's very strange. So there's a lot of things in this case where I just don't know enough about technology to know if, like, was that a common thing? Did a bunch of people have that? Or was this something special? Like, was this man a genius? Or was this, like, something that any kind of layman could do? You know? I am looking it up. So keep that in the back of your mind that he can technically call his house at any time and he can hear what's happening at his house. So he claims that he repeatedly called the house and was listening in because he couldn't hear Jane. 
And he was listening in to see if maybe he could hear her or could find out what's happening. You know what I mean? That seems like very interesting. I don't know if I'm just typing in the wrong thing too, but I looked it up and there's nothing coming up about it. So that must be like a very like specialized, not a lot of people know because that's dangerous. (laughs) I don't know. So at the end, so Jim doesn't get a hold of her. He finishes his work day. And actually this particular day, his boss, whose name is James Zeller, actually asked Jim for a ride home after work. So at the end of the day, Jim drives his boss home and then he heads to his house, which is at 895 Trout Brook Road in Hudson. What happened next has not only been heavily scrutinized and speculated about, but Jim himself actually has given several completely conflicting accounts. So his first account, the one that he told to 911 operators and first responders immediately after Jane's death, went like this. Jim alleges that he came home from work, he called out Jane's name, and when she didn't respond, he assumed that maybe she was out shopping with her sister. He then went back outside to investigate the garage door. After looking at the garage door, he decided to head inside and watch TV. Upon entering the TV room in their basement, he stumbled upon Jane's deceased body. She was lying face up on the carpet, and her entire face had been blown off, seemingly from a single shotgun blast to her head, but there was no weapon in the room. What about the baby? Like, I'm assuming Jane picked Jonathan up from daycare. Was the baby there too? Was he still at daycare? I'm glad that you asked because that's going to be an important part of this. That's one of my questions too, and we're going to answer it. At 6.18 p.m., Jim called 911, and I'm going to play part of this 911 phone call. So Kaylee, I emailed you the audio clip of the 911 phone call if you want to listen to it. Yeah, I do. I started to listen, then I was like, I better not listen until <laughs> Was it clip one 911 call? Yes. Okay. 911. 911. Hey. My wife is dead and my two year old son is missing. Do you want an ambulance sent out there? <laughs> okay. What do you think that she passed away from? Her whole head is gone. Does this look like it's self inflicted? <laughs> well, there's no gun or anything. Hold on. I need to listen to that one more time. I need to hear what he said in the very beginning. 911. 911. The wife is dead and my two-year-old son is missing. Do you want an ambulance sent out there? Okay. What do you think that she passed away from? Her whole head is gone. Does this look like it's self-inflicted? There's no gun or anything. Okay. My wife is dead and my two-year-old son is missing. Yeah, so let's let's break it down. So I'm going to do it piece by piece. So first thing that Jim says to the 911 operator, he said, my wife's dead and my two-year-old son is missing. So Jim has supposedly just gotten home from work and tells 911, my two-year-old son is missing. Next, the operator asks, do you want an ambulance sent out there? And he responds quietly while crying, I think she's dead. The operator then asks, what do you think she passed away from? And Jim says, her whole head is gone. She then asks, does this look like it's self-inflicted? And Jim says, well, there's no gun or anything. Do you have any thoughts about that? (laughs) This whole phone, this is just the weirdest thing I've ever listened to. Um, Like, 
the way that the 911 operator is speaking, like the, the words he's specifically choosing to say, I, I'm trying not to impose myself in this situation and draw conclusions based on that, but I can't help it because I am a human and that is what humans do. Personally, if I came home to this scene, I would be freaking the fuck out. And I, I don't even know. I, I don't think I can totally judge what I would be doing, but I think I would still want an ambulance. I'd be like, send help. I, I think I'd just be like, send help. Yeah. Something happened to my wife. I, I don't know what happened. Most people go into shock and they don't immediately yeah. start saying the words that she's dead. dead. Yeah. Yeah. They'll like, say, Something happened to her and they still, there's still so much shock and hope that you're like, maybe she's actually okay. Even if their head is gone, you're still exactly like, but maybe right. she's okay. Yeah, you're exactly right. What's rubbing me the wrong way is how logical this seems. Like it's just a logical reaction, not an emotional reaction, which is weird to me. But he is crying. He is crying. And um, yes, but, but the way he's describing the situation is just not an emotional reaction agreed it's, it's not consistent with his crying i guess yeah and that feels weird like i i think you're exactly right my brain knew something was weird about it before i completely understood and i don't think i still fully do but also i don't know if you feel this way but the 911 operator is the one offering all of the prompts and the yes. questions he's not volunteering no. any information until after she asks yes which if you've listened to other 911 phone calls it seems like the person is like readily just like rattling off details like hey i need someone out here immediately my wife you know she's yeah. hurt and blah 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 and the 911 operator is usually the one to be like slow down you know yeah. but here it's like she's doing all the work to be like do you need an ambulance and mm -hmm. he's just like no right and i guess it also strikes me weird that he says his 2 year old son is missing yes we can go into right now. Does um, he even know that she's he's missing? Like, did he? I don't. I don't know. This is a piece of the puzzle that I really don't have an answer to. The only thing I can surmise is that I'm assuming that Jane would be the one to pick up Jonathan from daycare, mm -hmm. and so maybe Jim is used to that. Every day when he gets home from work, she and Jonathan are there. Yeah. So when he gets home and his wife is dead and he doesn't know where Jonathan is. He assumes he's missing. Like, maybe someone kidnapped him. Like, maybe this is a kidnapping. Maybe and, someone killed yeah. my wife and took my child. And I get that, especially considering stumbling upon that scene, I guess. Um, like, it's not crazy to assume yeah. that might be the case. If but you I'll tell you right now, we find out later that Jonathan was just still at the babysitters. That's very weird that Jane never picked him up then. She never picked him up. That doesn't make any sense. I don't know what time she typically would. We know that... Her plan was that when she got off work, she was going to go to TJ Maxx, get her purse replaced. Why didn't she go straight there from work? Then? I have no idea. Because Jim, it sounds like he actually got home later than normal because he had to drop his his boss off at mm -hmm. home. I have no idea how far away his boss lives, but we can assume that Jim's probably getting home from work later than normal. Mm -hmm. This call is happening at 618. So sometime between Jane getting off work at 3 and Jim getting home at... 530? 6 o'clock? No, I thought you said 618 is when he got home. 618 is when he called the police, but I'm I'm wondering what their normal schedule was that he assumes that when he gets home from work at 5, 530, 6 o'clock, his son is normally home. Also, right? okay, so was Jonathan at the daycare? Or was yes, he so he they this is another confusing point, which is that in Jim's statement, he says that 
he dropped off Jonathan at daycare. Uh huh. But then all of the police reports and documents talking about Jonathan in the afternoon, they use the word babysitter, and I don't know if it's the same thing as the daycare. If they just, or if those are two different entities. Okay, strange. But we just know that he is where he is supposed to be. Okay, and he's alive, and nothing happened. He's to him. alive. He was just never picked up by his mom. Yes. Okay. I won't I won't make you any more anxious than you already are. Yeah. <laughs> Jonathan is fine. Okay. So like we said before, Jim places the 911 phone call at 6.18 p.m. and police arrive immediately. Mm-hmm. So police arrive and Jim is taken to the police station for questioning. Mm-hmm. He's assigned an investigator whose name is Earl Clark. And right off the bat, Earl Clark does not believe Jim's version of events. And Earl Clark later testifies in court that it was his professional opinion that Jim was being deceptive during his first interrogation. But he doesn't elaborate what specifically Jim did or how Jim was acting that made him suspicious. He basically just says, like, I've been doing this a long time and this guy was being shady. (laughs) So that very first night. The police learned that Jim stood to collect on a life insurance policy in the event of his wife's death, totaling $116,000. Here we go. <laughs> so Detective Clark learns this, like, immediate, like immediately they can just pull this up, right? Yeah. And so Detective Clark is like, like you said, here we go. Yeah. So he very aggressively wastes no time and asks Jim point blank, did you kill your wife? Jim denies killing his wife. And he also denies having someone else kill his wife. That... What? That seems interesting to me. Why is that interesting? Um, he just goes right in it. I, well, I think they I asked think, him. No, I don't even... Oh, they asked him. Okay. He didn't, like, asked- offer... Because that's what I was thinking. I was like, did you kill your wife? He's like, no, I didn't kill her. And I didn't have anybody else kill her either. That's what I thought of. And I was like, that's no. weird. They, uh, I think, let's say he did hire someone. Yeah. Then he could very confidently be like, no, no I didn't I, kill her. Yeah. <laughs> but they probably like, did you kill her or do you know who killed her? And he was like, no. Right? Yeah. So that's all he's saying. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Glad we wow. cleared that up. <laughs> okay. I don't know how long they questioned him for, but Detective Clark, he's dissatisfied. He doesn't really believe Jim, but eventually he has to end the interrogation because they're not getting anywhere. Yeah. But before Jim leaves, Detective Clark collects Jim's clothing, like all of his clothes, his shoes, and then they swab Jim for gunshot residue. Smart. Yeah. So I think that's all pretty standard procedure. I mean, I don't know if it is, but... Well, I think they're supposed to be doing that. But they're not. Good thing they did it with this guy. Yeah, I mean, I don't know a good thing. I don't know anything about this case, so we're, we're about to find out. I'll be quiet. Kaylee, I don't know if our listeners know, but Kaylee is coming into this completely blind. Totally blind. I know nothing about this case. She has no idea where this is going, and neither do you. <laughs> okay, so while this interrogation is happening, the police are back at the Newman residence, and they also immediately recognize that something is off about the crime scene. So the account of Jane's body was, for the most part, accurate. She was lying face up on the carpet, and she had sustained a fatal gunshot blast to her head. But then police noticed something suspicious. Have you ever seen a house from, like, the 70s that has the wood paneling? Yeah. So in the Newman's basement, which is where Jane's body is, in the TV room, or you might call it, like, a den, Mm -hmm. the walls are wood paneling over plasterboard. And the police notice that there's a small hole in the wall near her body, and the hole goes all the way through to the laundry room. Like from the gun shot blast? No. Oh. 
It is not a, a gun hole, right? It was not created with a gun. Okay. So they notice a small hole, and I don't want to say it's like a pin-sized hole. It's a little bit bigger, like more like maybe like a pencil eraser. Okay. Like somewhere in there. So it's like small, small, right? And it goes all the way through the wall. And then when they go into the laundry room, they find that there's actually another hole, a much bigger one that's like several inches in diameter. And it also goes all the way through the wall. But the reason that they didn't see it from inside the basement is because someone had hung a picture over it. Are you picturing this okay? Yeah. Okay. Just making sure that you're following. Yeah. So they find these holes and they're like, this is weird. The next day... Really quick, actually, yeah. to, to clarify, the laundry room is also in the basement? Yeah. Okay, okay. They're just, they're next to each other. Yeah. So the next day, so now we're on Tuesday. So the next day at 11 a.m., Jane's autopsy was performed and the coroner determined that her death was caused by intraoral gunshot blast... Meaning that the gun had been inside her mouth when it was fired. Oh. Normally, this kind of death is most associated with victims of suicide, not mm. homicide. Yeah. You have any thoughts so far? Um, where's the gun? Uh, that she showed no signs of wanting to commit suicide, no signs of mental illness, sounds like, from anybody who knew her. Was she unconscious when she died? I, I'm trying to figure out if she's a victim of homicide, how could they get her mouth over the gun and how could have anyone else pulled it without also being in a blast radius was she laying mm -hmm. down when the gun was in her mouth what was she sitting up was she unconscious like what i anyway i'll let you continue yeah you're gonna find out because if you think you're confused now just wait <laughs> so after the autopsy and after so after the autopsy is like looking like a suicide and after the crime scene they found those weird holes police decide that they need to talk to Jim again so they request another interview for him and this is on Wednesday so they told him about their findings about the holes in the wall and the autopsy and this is when Jim completely changes his entire story oh so <gasps> forget the first story <laughs> oh my god when confronted a second time, this is what Jim tells police, okay? So Jim says that when he came home from work Monday evening, he called out for his wife, but she didn't answer. He searched the house, and he saw a light coming from under the laundry room door. When he went into the laundry room, he found a shotgun lying on the floor with fishing line tied to it, and there was a small hole in the wall leading to their basement den. So he heads into the den, and he finds his wife dead on the carpet, just as he stated before, except this time he tells police that there was a suicide note lying on the floor next to her body. Oh my god. When asked why he lied to police in his first interview, Jim states that he didn't want Jane's memory to be tainted by her suicide, and that he tried to stage the scene to look like a murder instead. You're fucking kidding me. You're telling me this man walked away because you told me he got a job at Microsoft. I, I'm done. I'm walking <laughs> away. Okay, this episode is over. We're done. I'm done. Oh, okay, so I love how he ties in everything that they know perfectly. But it, yeah. it's not perfect. But it's, okay, He he's like trying to play chess with them. Yeah, yeah. So... They give him a little bit of information. He's like, oh, yes. And then he ties the information in with what everything they already know so that it hopefully it makes sense to them. But it doesn't. It makes no fucking sense. What did he say the holes were for? Did he elaborate on the holes at all? Like, 
That still doesn't make any fucking sense. There's a sh- a shotgun tied with fishing wire th- through the hole. Like, explain that to me again. I need I need a better okay. visual. Okay. So this is what police conclude based on what they found at the scene and what they're learning from Jim. So based on all of the evidence at hand, police determine that the shotgun had most likely been propped up on a water softener in the laundry room and that the larger hole in the wall had been where the barrel was poked through to the other side. The gun was then rigged with fishing line that was then threaded through the smaller hole so that someone could theoretically stand on the other side of the wall, place their mouth on the barrel, tug on the fishing line, and fire the gun to commit suicide. Okay, but there's no blast through the wall in the den, right? Well, no, the the gun is already poking through the hole. I thought you said the, the hole in the den was super, super small. There's the larger one where the barrel went through. Yeah. And there's a smaller one where the fishing line has been threaded through so that theoretically you can tug on it and it is wrapped around the trigger and you can shoot yourself. Yeah, but th- then wouldn't there have, have to have been like a bullet hole through the wall? No, because the barrel's all the way through the wall. Okay, I must be confused. So, Do you want me so to send this, you a picture? Yes, this was in... I thought the barrel was poking through in the laundry room. There's a hole that goes through the entire wall. From the laundry room. So the, From the laundry room so the, all the way through the wall into the den. So the gun is poking all the way through the wall. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, that makes sense. Does that make sense? Yes. Can you I'm kind of picture it in your head? Yes. But okay. this... This makes no sense because you can just shove the gun in your mouth and pull the trigger. Yes. So <laughs> why people, would you need to set up this whole contraption? You don't. And Nobody... people who are suicidal don't fucking do that either because usually it's really like impulsive and mm-hmm. they don't set up this really intricate system. They're in emotional and mental anguish and they impulsively turn towards a quick solution, which is usually suicide right yeah um, and and i'm not trying to minimize that please oh my god please i don't want anybody to think that i'm trying to make light or like mock that situation at all um but you wouldn't set up this whole contraption to do it you would no you would just do it i have never seen an account of anything like this ever happening never and neither have police yeah that doesn't make any sense whatsoever because people die from firearm assisted suicide all the time. They don't need fishing line. They don't need to poke holes in walls. By the way, I forgot to mention, they determined that the holes in the walls were more than likely produced by a hammer. Where was the hammer? So she... The hammer was in the basement. They found a a hammer nearby. Okay, okay. I was going to say, she hammered the holes in the wall and then she put it back in the garage or wherever it goes. And then she came back and... All of this makes no sense. Because there's so many easier ways... Like, assume, assuming that ways. she procures this gun and hides it from her hub- husband because with the intention that she's going to commit suicide when she gets home from work. Yeah. First of all, where did the gun even come from? We'll get there. Okay. 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 <sighs> what I'm saying is people shoot themselves in the head every day. They don't need fishing line. No. No. So obviously everyone is confused, but this is the only thing that it doesn't make sense, but it's the only thing that makes even remote sense. <laughs> I put in my notes, be sure to ask Kaylee, does this make sense? (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry, I volunteered that information much before you had to ask. So did they, like, see if there was gunpowder residue on the wall surrounding the holes then? Um, as far as I know, they didn't... Or even on the inside of the wall. Like, I don't... I I don't know. And honestly, I was talking to Nathaniel last night because he's my gun expert. 
And I guess with shotguns, gunpowder residue is also a little bit different. Um, yeah, I guess so. Because depending on the type of gun, the powder will come from a different location. So mm-hmm. when you think of a long gun, you assume that a shell is being ejected because there's that little hatch on the side that I don't, I'm probably using the wrong word, but a hatch opens up and then the shell shoots out. Yeah. That's usually where the gunpowder comes from. But this particular gun, which has never been found, by the way. What? Jim describes as being a break action, which is where it's, it opens, it like breaks in half. Oh. Do you know what I'm talking about? And so about? you have to open to release the shell. You have to open it to release the shell. And he claims that when he found it, it was intact. It hadn't been opened. So theoretically, <laughs> even if someone fires it, there might not be gunpowder residue. Also, uh, back to the contraption of okay. pulling. Sorry, I can't get over this. There's so many things that can go wrong. You would have to do it perfectly or you might it might not fire the first time. Like a, the fishing line could break. It could slip off the trigger. You could not tie the, night, the, the knot correctly mm-hmm. and it would come off. Like there's so many factors going into that working properly. Yes. And we're going to get into that later. And I actually have a firearms expert and I can tell you exactly what he says about okay. it. Okay. And plus most trigger pulls are like 10 pounds. That's like hard to do with your finger, let alone pulling it on fucking wire. That might not even work. Yeah. You're, you're figuring this out. <laughs> so you, yeah, this is exactly what everyone is thinking. Oh my. Right? They're like, this makes no sense. So Jim claims that when he discovered his wife had died by suicide, because remember, he finds a, he supposedly finds a suicide note next to her body on the floor. Mm-hmm. And he picks it up and hides it away. No, that would make too much sense. None of this case is going to make sense. What did he do with it? Jim claims that when he discovered his wife had died by suicide, he read her note and he immediately decided to protect her reputation and decides that he's going to discard the gun. He's going to break their front door in to make it look like there had been forced entry. No. He's going to hang a picture over the hole in the wall. He's going to burn up the suicide note and then he's going to call 911. You're fucking joking. No. I wish I was. Jim is fucking joking. I... No, he killed her. If I discovered that my partner had committed suicide and they left a note, I would be hysterically... I don't think I would ever move on because I would be holding on to that note with everything that I had. Yeah. You'd be reading it every day. I would never move on because I had that little piece. Like, the last little piece of them with me, right? Like, I... I can't even imagine what what is this like the 30s protecting a reputation I okay we're going to get into it but first I want to do a recap just in case anyone has zoned out <laughs> originally Jim stated that he found his wife murdered and there was no gun after police survey the scene and Jane's autopsy results come back Jim backtracks and says actually my wife killed herself and I staged the scene to look like a murder to protect her memory. I have an audio clip. If you want to listen to clip number two. When I entered the house, I could smell gunpowder. Then what happened? I could see the light was on underneath the laundry room door, and uh, I went to the uh, laundry room door and opened it, and there was a shotgun on the floor and a fishing wire attached to it. I could see a hole in the wall, and... I immediately went around to the other side of the hole, and I found Jane. And uh, uh, it was obvious that 
you know, she was dead. No, I don't accept that. That's the dumbest thing I've ever fucking heard. Does he say what the suicide note said? That is coming up next. Okay. Okay, let's talk about the suicide note. So Jim also claims that when he found his wife's body, there was a suicide note on the carpet next to her, which I know this might seem insignificant, but why was it on the ground? If she had taken the time to write out a thoughtful suicide note, wouldn't she have like left it on a table or put it in her pocket? But it's lying. He claims it's lying on the carpet next to her. I don't know if this is too dark, but we probably don't want to put this in. But (laughs) when I was considering suicide, I wanted to leave a note on the counter before anyone found me so that they would know and have like a chance to prepare themselves, prepare themselves. Exactly. I was never planning on having the note right next to me. I wanted I didn't want anybody to find me in a bad state and I felt guilty about that but I also yeah I was trying to protect that's because the you're people, a considerate person the, protect the people who would find me by preparing them with a note like uh, where they could see it and find it before they found me I and based on what we know about Jane she's a people person she's considerate she cares about her family she she probably would have had a similar thought to prepare if she were planning on killing herself. Yes. My biggest issue with a lot of Jim's accounts is that it sounds like something that a man would make up, not something that a woman would do. She is who she is, and it doesn't line up with the way she supposedly killed herself is very strange. This is not lining up at all. Yes. If you think you're already mad, just wait. Oh, boy. Because we're going to talk about the suicide note, which is, in my opinion, one of the more infuriating parts and most unbelievable parts of this case. So Jim, like I said before, claims that he read the note a couple of times before he destroyed it. So when police find out that there was a suicide note or Jim's claiming there was a suicide note, they ask him to recall it as best he can. Mm -hmm. So if you want to listen to audio clip number three, this is Jim recounting what he remembers from the suicide note. Okay. Tell me exactly what the note said as best you can remember. Uh, She was concerned about the... Uh, ever being able to meet the expectations of her family. She felt they wouldn't respect her. Um, something to the effect of this way you can you know, get the uh, life insurance money, pay off our debts, find a better wife and a mother for Jonathan. Something about this way people will really remember me as young, uh, thin, and beautiful. And uh, she closed it with, I love you. Oh my fucking God! Oh my fucking God! This was written by her husband, a man who clearly doesn't even know her or has never cared to know her. And Thank it is, you! It is Thank literally you. a regurgitation of shit-ass gender social norms. And I, yes. I am so sad for Jane. What kind of life did she live that this man didn't... He didn't even respect her as a person, let alone no. his partner and his wife and the mother of his child. Fuck this man. I... Remember me as thin and beautiful? Fuck you. Fuck you. I... Oh my god. I'm literally shaking right now because I'm yeah. so angry. Yeah. I I can't even believe this. I And he... I'm assuming he got away with it because of what you told me. So I cannot even believe he's gotten away with this. I'm about to hunt this fucking man down. You said he's in Silicon Valley? <laughs> no, he's in Seattle. Oh my fucking god. Okay, okay. So you had the same reaction I did, which is, I don't know how anyone, 
anyone, man or woman, could listen to that. But especially, I feel like as a woman, I'm hearing that and all I hear is a man. How do I phrase this? He's a man pretending to have the emotional depth of a woman going up contemplating suicide. Yes. And not reaching it at all because he has no emotional depth whatsoever. Exactly. Exactly. Because he might actually be a sociopath at this point. Like he's. Do you want to, do you want to break it down a little bit? So what was it especially about the note that was so egregious? Um, I I don't know anything about Jane's uh, relationship with her family. Do you know anything about the relationship she had with her family? Not really, but Jim is also claiming that she suffered from bulimia. Mm-hmm. And he would say that she she had kind of general depression and anxiety. She had an eating disorder. Jeez, I wonder why. Exactly. Married to an absolute gem of a man. Yes, and actually the jury says something about that later. But I don't think her family even knew that she had depression. So I don't know that she was very emotionally close to her family. I think physically, yes. Like They lived in the same area. She had just talked to her mother that day about plans for Thanksgiving. Like Mm -hmm. they were not distant by any means. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of her emotional struggles stayed within her marriage. Okay. Okay. She probably didn't want to be a burden on other people, which maybe is why there's maybe a small grain of truth to the suicide note, because he maybe included that because he'd heard his wife talk about how... Yeah, it's possible that she had a, a rough relationship with her family. I mean, Jane did talk about how... Well, I guess Jim assumed that Jane was going to be with her sister that day shopping. So Mm -hmm. I'm assuming she had maybe some good relationships with her siblings, potentially. Even if we don't know this information, usually, at least personally, from personal experiences, when you're contemplating suicide, you're in the thick of it. You feel surrounded by it. And if she's not living with her family, if she has some degree of separation from her family, I don't think that would have been the main cause of her spiral into like a deep depression that would push her towards suicidality. Um, So that doesn't sit right with me, that part where he describes the relationship, the difficulties with her family, never being able to measure up, which it's also like a common trope. Everything that was written in the suicide note was a common trope to women in society and with their yeah. families, like everything, everything. It's it's just stereotypical is what it is. I'm not a, I'm not a good enough wife. I'm not a good enough yes. mother. I'll never measure up, right? But then he specifically includes what he remembers, which is that she specifically says, now you can collect on the insurance money, yep. pay off our debts, and find a better wife and mother for Jonathan. No. I can't even see a woman writing those words. No. No. I, we know that she loved her baby. We abs- yes. we know this. And in what world, if if she loves her baby so much, she would wish a different mother on them. I'm not a mom, so I I cannot totally and completely put myself in, in those shoes. But I cannot imagine a mother saying that, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially a mother that completely and totally loved her children and where there was nothing like wrong. <laughs> and Jim, Jim even said, they asked him on the stand, like, was she a good mom? And he said, absolutely. But he he weaponized these tropes about women in society and wrote them into a suicide note. Allegedly. Allegedly. But he did this. He ends the note with, this way... I will be remembered. I will be remembered as young, thin, and beautiful. Not a thing. Yeah. If you blow your head off, no one's going to remember you as young, thin, and beautiful. They're going to remember that you had your head blown off. If I feel like you're, you're exactly right. I feel like with the words that this, the way this was written, it would have been she 
overdosed on some pills and fell asleep peacefully in her bed, exactly. which is how a lot of women choose to commit suicide in yeah. the first place. Um, but not because they want to be remembered as beautiful and thin and peaceful. It's because they don't want to leave messes for their family to clean up. My immediate <gasps> thought upon hearing it, I first of all, I rolled my eyes so hard, like I could see my brain. Yeah. It was like painful. I rolled my eyes and I was like, ow, that kind of hurt. But <laughs> because that end part where he claims that she says, oh, this way I'll be remembered as young, thin, and beautiful. To me, immediately I felt like there's your motive. Mm-hmm. He's... He's indirectly saying through the suicide note that these were the things about his wife that bothered him, Mm -hmm. that she was a burden to him, Mm -hmm. that she was emotional, that she had depression, that she had an eating disorder, and he was sick and tired of it. And at this point, he's probably like, you know, it's better to just get rid of her. I can cash in, get a bunch of money, and then find a better wife and mother. Mm -hmm. Like, he indirectly, I think, confesses in the suicide note. Yes, I agree. Honestly, he... he it up bad with that last part writing that last part uh the life insurance and the remember me as young thin and beautiful part because that the other part can be misconstrued to be believable but that last little bit just sent it over the edge of being unbelievable (laughs) absolutely unbelievable that's not how people write suicide notes (laughs) and that's not what people say when they write them either the entire letter revolves around jim yes she never once says anything to her child that she loved. Mm-hmm. Like she said absolutely nothing to her baby boy. Everything, Jim is recanting this letter, recounting this letter, and he can't fathom that it's not about him. Yes. So when he's trying to think up a suicide note, he thinks it's a letter between his dead wife and him. And he doesn't even think about his child because I guarantee you this woman, if she had committed suicide, she would have included something about her baby boy. Yes. Or she would have written him a whole separate note. Yes. You know? I love you so much. Like, exactly. I I want you to have a better life. I Like, uh, I wish it didn't have to be this way. All of these things that are much more believable than that. But according to Jim, nothing. Nothing. Because everything revolves around him. About him and how uh, she's just not good enough for him. Okay, so we're going to move on from the suicide note. And we're going to talk about the timeline of events and what Jim says he did after... He finds Jane's body. So according to Jim's second version of events, right? So now he's admitting, oh, actually, there was a gun. And actually, there was a suicide note. And this was all a suicide that I covered up. We're on that timeline. Okay. So in that timeline where he finds the gun and hides all the evidence, he claims that he actually took the gun. He puts it in, like, I think some trash bags. He says he puts it in the backseat of his car on the floor, And just as he's about to pull out of the driveway, because he thinks he's going to drive off somewhere and discard the gun, he has this brilliant idea that he should break down his own front door to make it look like there was forced entry. So he gets back out of his car, breaks his door off the jam, and then he gets back in the car, and he says that he takes the gun out to a bridge on the St. Croix River, which, like I said before, is the really big river that divides Minnesota from Wisconsin. With this timeline, Jim allegedly arrives home from work about 5.53 p.m., and he doesn't make the 911 call until 6.18. Basically, based on Jim's story, from the time that he arrives home from work to the time that he's back at his house and he's destroyed all the evidence and he's called the police, it's only been 25 minutes. Okay, let's let's walk through this as normal people who are not reptilian 
unemotional sociopaths. Let's, let's okay because hold think on, I've about got this. more. Oh my god. Okay. Well, it's just the finer details also matter. So okay. if you pull up a map and you put in their address and you pull up the bridge that he supposedly dropped the gun off of, that alone is about a 12-minute drive. One way? One way. No way. So to get all the way to the bridge, 12 minutes. All the way back, 12 minutes. That's already 24 of his minutes. And later he tries to say, like, well, maybe I didn't go home from work at 5.53. Maybe it was closer to this the math right? ain't mathin yeah so like he's done a million times before his story is not solid but originally the timeline is 25 minutes and the police are like that just doesn't make any sense um not to mention that he doesn't even say and this is all during rush hour <laughs> oh my god he doesn't even say that he just drives onto the bridge because this is a busy big bridge right mm-hmm. He doesn't say he just drives onto the bridge, gets out, and throws the gun in the water. He claims that he parks at the bottom, like kind of near the bank of the river. And then he says he like scales over a four-foot fence. Meanwhile, he's wearing a trench coat. And then he sprints up and runs up to the bridge to drop it off. What is he thinking? He thinks that he is a government special agent, I think. I think he's playing secret agent. It's been 25 minutes and he doesn't map this out in his head? No. Okay, so like I said before, we're going to walk through this like non-reptilian sociopathic people and make some logical sense to this. Like if he walks in, he finds this contraption and then finds his wife. He doesn't have a panic attack cry. He finds the suicide note. I, I, I think... It would take me three to five business days to come to terms with the fact that I found my partner dead he on the ground. He says that it took him about 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Okay. So he he was expecting this. That, uh, even if you were expecting it, you would have a hard time <laughs> grappling with it. Okay. Your partner's head is blown off on the floor of your basement and you're not freaking the fuck out. And you immediately go into, oh my God, that's a suicide note. Oh my God, I got to clean up this mess. That's not how oh this God. works. This is a suicide. I'm going to make a stage like a murder. And but, then I'm going to go to this bridge. I've already got it all planned out. I know exactly what bridge I'm going to go to. Right. This doesn't make any sense. And that's not how your brain works. That's not how anybody's brain works. That's just not. It, it's literally impossible for this story to be true, to be what actually happened. He's lying. So let's hear it in his own words. Let's hear his explanation. Listen to audio clip number four. Let's listen to what this dumbass man has to say. Less than a minute after finding his wife and reading her suicide note, he began to act. I said, you're not going to die this way, Jane, and I took care of it. I ran back to the laundry room, I picked up the gun and put it into the garbage bags. He put his own shoulder to the door. I broke in the front door. To make it look like an intruder. Got in the car and began my drive. It was rush hour when Jim Newman says he got to this bridge. He says he parked down there at the base of the bridge. He then ran across the entrance ramp, jumped over what was about a four-foot-high fence, and sprinted all the way up that long walkway. He then dropped the gun into the St. Croix River. And then I went back to the house. I went back into the room that Jane was in, and uh, I sat down next to her on the couch there and read the note again. And I don't know how you even went back in that room. It's my wife. 
and I think it was at about that time that the, the furnace kicked in and I realized I could just burn this note up and it would be gone too. Then he hung a picture on the wall to cover up the hole. And he says he did all of this, dealt with the note, the gun, the wall, the door. He did it all in 25 minutes. He then called 911 and reported a homicide. That reporter's not having any of this either. <laughs> She's like, he did all of this in 25 minutes. She knew what was up. Yeah, yeah, she did. <laughs> she knew she was talking to a murderer right there. Um, that's literally impossible. I call, I call BS of the highest fucking order on this story. There's no way this could be possible in 25 minutes. But he was at work that whole day. We're going to get there. After Jim allegedly returned from the Hudson Bridge and was back home, he claims he heard the furnace kick on and it gave him the idea to burn up Jane's suicide note. He puts the, he allegedly puts the note underneath the furnace, catches it on fire, pulls it back out, and then drops it to let it burn on the cement floor before cleaning up the ashes. So based on Jim's account of going all the way to the bridge, dropping the gun in the water, police naturally attempt to try and recover the shotgun where Jim claims he threw it into the river, but nothing was or has ever been found. So did he actually drop it on that bridge? We don't know. Ultimately, in early 1994, so this is a year after Jane's death, both the medical examiner and law enforcement conclude that Jane died from suicide. What? I'm going to get into it. So the injuries discovered during her autopsy suggested the gun had been in her mouth and that her right hand had been holding the barrel as it fired, which is consistent with a suicide. Her husband, Jim, was charged with obstruction of justice for lying to police and disposing of evidence, the gun, right? Uh, several months later, he pleads no contest and he's convicted. And I couldn't find anywhere where it said what his actual sentencing was. But we know with certainty that just a few months after Jane's death, he hires a nanny to take care of Jonathan, whom he ends up falling in love with and marrying the next year. Oh my god. Did he have any, was there any proof that he knew this person before Jane died? Not that I've seen. Okay, so by March 1994, Jane's family is obviously not having any of this. We haven't really talked about her family at all, but her maiden name is Johnston. Mm -hmm. So when I've heard of the Johnstons, it's her parents and her siblings. Mm -hmm. So by March 1994, Jane's family had serious doubts about whether Jane even committed suicide. The Department of Justice investigated from 1995 through 1996, but ultimately they concluded there, that there just wasn't clear, satisfactory, or convincing evidence that Jane's death was a homicide. And so investigators recommended that the investigation be discontinued. So did they, is there any report on like blood spatter and brain matter? Like, what position her body was in when the gun fired? Because they can tell that. Like, crime yes. scene investigators can tell that. Does it say? So, yes. Sorry, I forgot to include it. There are so many small details. I, I'm probably going to miss several. But they tell immediately that night when they're surveying the crime scene that she was, like, face up right up against that wall that had the hole in it. Mm -hmm. Whether or not she went there of her own accord or she was forced to stand there, they pretty confidently determined that she was standing up against that wall. She had her mouth on the gun barrel and she had her right hand gripping the gun. Gripping the gun, not the not the cord? The barrel. So okay, her the right, barrel. 
her right hand was on the barrel holding the gun in her mouth. And then they surmise that her left hand is the one that pulled the fishing line to kill herself. Is she left-handed? It doesn't matter whether or not she's left-handed or right-handed. That's naturally what you would do is you would hold the gun probably with your dominant hand. I don't, I wouldn't. I'd pull with my dominant hand. What would you do, Kaylee? I would pull with my dominant hand. You would need all your strength to do that. It's a 10-pound trigger pull. Like, with fishing wire, you can you can hold a gun barrel steady in your mouth with your non-dominant hand. It gets weirder. So in 1994, Jim receives the proceeds from the $116,000 life insurance, life insurance policy on his wife. Remember? Mm-hmm. Although... The policy contained a suicide exclusion. You've heard of those, right? Like, it doesn't happen if you kill yourself. You don't get the money. Exactly. You can't collect if if there's a suicide. Get this, though. The suicide exclusion for their insurance policy had expired only four days before Jane's death. So the insurance was determined valid. How? That's either a very strange coincidence or... How would Jane even know that? Did she take out the life insurance policy for Jim or did Jim take out take it out on her? They both had life insurance policies, actually. But that could have been him trying to make it look less suspicious. Like, oh, we both have life insurance policies. Yeah, exactly. You know? Mm-hmm. Plus, it'd be easier to coax your wife into being like, we need this insurance. Let's both go in and get it. Yeah. So despite several experts concluding that Jane's death was a suicide... Her family was not convinced, and in 1997, so this is years later, they decided they want to take Jim to civil court to obtain money for Jonathan based on their belief that Jim murdered Jonathan's mother. And at this point, by the time this civil case is happening, Jim has already remarried, and he and his wife Heather have a newborn baby together. And like I said before, Heather was the nanny that he hired just months after Jane's death to take care of Jonathan. So finally, in June of 1997, almost four years after Jane's death, Jim finally faces his first courtroom. So Jane's family, who are the Johnstons, were represented by a local attorney named Mark Garrity. And Garrity decided to focus on character witnesses to illustrate how untrustworthy Jim Newman is. And he collected information about Jim's movements leading up to Jane's death. First, it was revealed that just a few weeks before Jane died, Jim had dropped off their dog Molly at the St. Croix Animal Shelter. On the paperwork where the shelter asked for the reason for dropping the dog off, Jim wrote, Owner passed away. What? (laughs) Okay, I want to know how police didn't track Jim's movements before Jane's death. They, like... (laughs) That's true. Jim was like, I didn't do it. Even though it really looks like it, I didn't do it. And police were like, Seems sus, but whatever, I guess. That's what happened? And they were like, obstruction of justice. We know he did that, at least. So we'll get him for that. But he... Yeah, because you know who found this out? Wasn't the police. It was Jane's mom. She digs into it, and when she finds out that they had gotten rid of their dog, she went to the animal shelter and asked to see the paperwork. And she looked at it, and she was like, oh my god, why on earth would he write that? It makes no sense why the police wouldn't do due diligence when literally a life was lost. I don't understand why they didn't look into this. Every time somebody dies, whether it's suspected suicide or not, they should be turning every single rock over. Jane's mom shouldn't have had to do that, is is why I'm angry. Well, I'm angry for a lot of reasons, but that's one of them. 
Mark Garrity also produces some more witnesses, and you are absolutely going to hate it. So Garrity calls on several women who testified that Jim had made uncomfortable romantic advances toward them prior to Jane's death. Hmm. One woman named Jennifer had been a receptionist at Jim's work from 1990 to 1992. After she left the company, she called up Jim in 1993 for professional advice regarding her computer because she knew he was tech savvy. When he showed up to her house, he brought a dozen roses with him. What? Which made her uncomfortable and she declined to take them, suggesting he give them to his wife instead. What? Okay, this is, he, this man thought this was going to be like a porn scenario where he, he, she's calling him to fix her computer, but it's not actually that. And he gets there and she opens the door in lingerie and then asks, how can I repay you for all the help? Like that's, that's what this man thought was going to happen. I guarantee you. I guarantee well, fucking to you. It's really bold because there's, there's only one way to interpret a man showing up to your house with a dozen roses, right? Yes. Well, so, so he's created this fantasy in his head already, like a scenario that just isn't real. If he has the audacity to bring a dozen roses, he thought that she was coming on to him when she asked him to come help her. Yeah. So that made her extremely uncomfortable. She refuses to take the flowers for obvious reasons. She knows he's married and she's yeah. probably very confused why he would pull this, right? Yeah. But then it gets worse because on a different day, Jennifer was out shopping. She was at Target and she runs into Jim. And she's still really uncomfortable about what happened with the roses. And so once she runs into him, she tries to make polite conversation, but also tries to end it as quickly as possible and get out of there. Yeah. She runs a few more errands that day. And then when she gets back to her apartment complex, Jim is sitting in his car waiting outside in the parking lot. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That's, I personally would be terrified. So she is not polite this time. She already saw him once that day and was polite, but now he's at her house and he hasn't been invited. So she says that she goes up to him, tells him that he's making her uncomfortable and tells him he needs to leave. Good for her. So she's very direct. And according to her, she doesn't have any more issues or interactions with him after this. Okay, and also, like, if you're wondering, well, maybe she made this up, Jim doesn't actually refute this testimony at all. He requests that the stories be thrown out. He believes that they're irrelevant to the case, like to his <laughs> wife's death. But the judge denies this and says, no, we're going to keep it. Yeah, this speaks to his character. It also speaks to motive, like, yeah. because one motive could potentially be that he's romantically unhappy and he's pursuing other women. Yeah. Okay, also, um, Jane's family, the Johnstons, get a second opinion on Jane's autopsy. So remember, the original autopsy said that it was most likely suicide due to it being an intraoral gunshot wound, right? Mm -hmm. But they get the professional expertise of a man named Dr. Jeffrey Jensen, who at the time was Milwaukee County's medical examiner. And he testified on the stand that Jane's manner of death looked like a homicide. Jensen testified that part of his role as a medical examiner is to consider the totality of circumstances surrounding the death. In this case, he would take into consideration that the scene was obviously staged after her death. So he's he's arguing like any good medical examiner shouldn't just look at the raw evidence of the body in front of them, but also take into consideration the crime scene. Yeah, that factors in reality of the situation. But also... 
Dr. Jensen, he specifically is an expert on what he calls masqueraded death scenes, which I think just means like death scenes that have been manipulated or staged. Mm. And he's actually even lectured on the topic. So he's credible, essentially. And probably the best expert witness in this particular case. Yeah. In Jane's case, the totality of circumstances also includes her movements and her behavior, which we haven't even touched on yet. Because if they want to argue that Jane committed suicide, you would also have to look at what she was doing that day and how her how she interacted with others. So they bring those witnesses to the stand. One of Jane's co-workers claims that she and Jane went on a walk together earlier that day and that Jane seemed completely normal and showed no signs of distress. Jane was actively making plans for the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday in a few days and also mentioned that the strap on her purse had broken, so she was planning to stop by the store that day to replace it. When Jane's body was found, she was still wearing her outdoor coat and her newly replaced purse was nearby sitting on the couch. She didn't even take off her coat before supposedly killing herself. She didn't even prop up the gun. She had to like cut the holes in the walls and then tie the string to the, around the trigger and then, and then loop it through the, the wall. Like all of those things and she wouldn't have taken her coat off, her big coat. She was also still wearing her shoes. That doesn't make sense. Apparently, she had stopped at the store. Specifically, it was a TJ Maxx. She stopped at the TJ Maxx about 3.15 p.m. So this would have been right after work. It's believed that she went directly into the TV room after arriving home from the store, still wearing her outdoor clothes, which, according to Jim's version of events, would have been almost immediately after he claims that she called him about the garage door. There's just no time. There's no realistic timeline here. What suicidal person is focusing on replacing their their broken purse, calling about a broken garage door, like, and then immediately going to, like, set up this complicated system to shoot themselves? His story doesn't add up, and it and it bothers me that none of the men, like, investigating this batted- I'm assuming it was mostly men, anyway. None of the people investigating this really batted an eye. They were like, well, this is really suspicious, but whatever, I guess. He said he didn't do it. I think they were suspicious, but they couldn't find any evidence of a homicide. Like, there was no evidence that anyone else was there with her. The autopsy said that her hand was on the barrel, that her mouth was on the g- gun- whenever it fired, which is consistent with a suicide. They just, they don't have the evidence to place another person at the scene. And this kills me because so many people get arrested for so much less. For less evidence than what was fucking here. Like, I... So, Dr. Jensen, who I love, he's like, no, if if you're just going to focus on the body, sure, you could say it's a suicide, whatever. But if you take into consideration the crime scene... And all the other factors surrounding this woman's sa- life. <laughs> he specifically said not only does he believe that to a reasonable degree it can be concluded a homicide, but he said if this was a criminal case, he would have testified that it was a homicide. There you go. In addition to that, he also said that he showed the case materials to three other board-certified forensic pathologists in his office, and they all unanimously agreed that the death was probably a homicide. I agree. I'm not a professional of anything. I'm a professional of being annoying, but I absolutely agree. I think this observation is extremely astute. In my ten out of ten chef's kisses. <laughs> Is that a thing? (laughs) 14 out of 5 stars. I would shove my tongue down that chef's throat (laughs) to show him how much I appreciate him. (laughs) 
Just no kidding. sending that my regards. Sexual harassment. <laughs> yeah, don't send my regards to this chef. Bring this man out to me on a platter, and I'll show. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to thank him a different way. Anyways, <laughs> you know what I mean? we're getting into murky water. <laughs> well, I've been living in murky water. <laughs> Swamp witch. <laughs> Let's out a witchy laugh. Something else really bizarre that we haven't talked about that also helped convince Dr. Jensen that Jane was the victim of homicide was that there were bits of packing material lodged into her head from the gunshot blast. And investigators determined that the barrel of the gun had been wrapped with a pink packing material that had been affixed with black electrical tape. Are you picturing this in your head? Yes. When I say packing material... Some accounts say bubble wrap, but you know that stuff that's kind of in between where it comes in sheets and it's almost like a really thin foam? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was that stuff. And I'm assuming that was done to try and silence the gun or muffle the noise a little bit. Again, that would make no sense if she was doing it to herself. And yes, that feel like that would make it harder to like keep in your mouth almost too. So you and Dr. Jensen basically best bros because... <laughs> His reasoning was the exact same. He was like, if you're going to kill yourself, why would you even care about- How loud it is. Muffling the sound. Or if it wasn't about the sound, what what other what other purpose does it serve? I don't think any. I can't imagine any. I'm not a gun expert or anything or a suicide expert, but I don't imagine it would help in either of those circumstances. So nobody knows why it was on there. Like to this day, it's just kind of- bizarre like why was their packing material taped to the end of the scum and then once again this also doesn't factor into a realistic timeline of her doing this or being able to do this within the allotted time because she was at work all day right like she she went to a full day of work yeah we don't know when the gun was set up like did she cut like if you're gonna theorize oh she killed herself did she set up the gun the night before and just hoped that jim wouldn't see it when he was at home by himself with Jonathan, that seems kind of careless to like leave a gun around with a not quite two year old. Oh, I guess, I guess never mind because she got home at 315. Yeah. Well, she exchanged her purse at 315. Jim claims that she called him about 330 to talk about the garage door. Okay. And then he came home at like 550 or something. Yeah. Okay. So never, never mind. I guess. Within the timeline, this could be possible, but it is weird in that span of time she didn't take off her coat. And then another thing, so Jane's family testifies, her brother Charles, her mom Patricia, and one of her sisters-in-law all testify to her character. And something that really stands out is that her brother Charles, who obviously has known her his entire life, says, Jane is not a mechanical person. He says... I'm a mechanical person, he says, but my sister Jane, I've literally never even seen her hold a hammer. Again, this goes back to why would she choose to kill herself this way? Like that, that it makes no sense. Why would you go through all of these weird, intricate things to do something that she could have done without doing as much? And it almost makes me think, because I fully believe Jim did this, right? So there was a lot of emotional intelligence lacking in how he reiterated what the suicide note said, right? Like he knew there was emotional depth to the situation and he didn't know how to replicate it. And it almost seems like he's, he's projecting that depth in the way that he, that he set up how she killed herself. The intricacy of the way she decided to kill herself, the way he killed her is supposed to mimic or replace the emotional depth that he doesn't understand. Yeah. Exactly. Like he's projecting it in 
in some way, in like a weird way. He's misdirected. Exactly. He's, mis- he's misdirecting his focus to something he feels like he could have more control over. Yes, Exactly. Something and then completely failing at all of the emotional aspects of it. One hundred percent. And I think it speaks very loudly about how he understood the situation. Mm-hmm. So that was an account from her brother Charles. When her mother Patricia was on the stand, she said that she's pretty confident Jane has never even handled a gun. Like they had guns in their house growing up, and she was like, she never touched them. She's never fired them. She's never even touched them. So she would have to teach herself how to use a gun and then set up this weird, intricate scenario when she's not even confident in using one in the first place. They also hire a professional forensic firearms examiner. His name is Richard Thompson. I love Richard Thompson. I love Mark Garrity. I love Richard Thompson. <laughs> it's I love Dr. Spit, Jensen. Spitting facts. They are. Richard Thompson, he's a firearms expert. So he testified that he attempted to recreate the circumstances of Jane's suicide using a bunch of different shotguns, a bunch of different weights of fishing line, because fishing line comes in different weights. Mm-hmm. So he says that he feels confident that she was more likely the victim of homicide because the fishing line method only works under really ideal circumstances. Mm -hmm. And it definitely wasn't something that a novice could or would do effectively. Mm -hmm. Which is what you said earlier. You're like, this seems like a lot could go wrong. There's too many moving parts. The gun is propped up by itself. If you tug on it, maybe the gun will fall. It'll misfire, right? Yeah. So the chances of like getting it right on the first pull, it's just a lot for someone who, someone like Jane, who is not mechanically minded and doesn't have a lot of experience or possibly any experience with guns to one, choose to do this method and then two, to actually do it correctly. Yeah. Succeed. Yeah. So the firearms expert says, this doesn't look like a suicide. This looks like a homicide. Yeah. If you already thought Jim was weird or crazy or whatever, it it gets even worse. Why does this keep getting worse and when will it end is what I want to know. I just want you to know it does not ever get better. Oh my god. Okay, lastly, they call Jim's boss to the stand. This is the same boss, James Zeller, that he gave a ride home to that same day that Jane died. Remember? Mm Mm-hmm. James Zeller provides a very interesting testimony of Jim's behavior after Jane's death. So his boss, James Zeller, says that Jim recounts the night of Jane's death differently. So this is a third account. According to James Zeller, Jim tells him that when he arrived home that night, their house had been rigged with a bomb. What?! That Jim had to expertly defuse before finding Jane's Jane's body. Uh, What? He had to expertly disassemble so their whole house wouldn't blow up? Fuck you, Jim. Imagine being so bold as to say that to your boss. Like, I can imagine, like, bragging into, like, a chat room full of strangers, like, I defused a bomb. I'm secretly a government special agent. But to say it to your boss that you see every day to be like, I defused a bomb, and then not expect that boss to be like, what? I think he's on, like, a narcissism high. Like, he must have gotten a high from this. Like, I... Because he got away with murder. Yes. Now he's like, I can do anything. I can defuse bombs. Honestly, I think that he felt invincible. Yeah. So... The story of the bomb, I shouldn't have to tell you, was patently false. (laughs) No. You think Jim would just lie? (laughs) That's so unlike him. So the story of the bomb obviously is false. And Jim's boss isn't an idiot and he knows this. 
So after Jim tells him this, he gets really suspicious and he starts looking at Jim like maybe he did kill his wife because if he's capable about making these huge dramatic lies, what else is he capable of lying about? Yeah, like why would he lie about this at a time like this? Like because it's a serious matter. It's it's incredibly serious and his whole world is rocked. Like he has a little baby and his wife supposedly just killed herself. That's like one of the saddest things. That you could probably go through, right? And he's not reacting at all the way a person should be reacting to this. There's a wide variety of ways to react to this. And none of Jim's reactions fall into that, the realm of possibility of, like, of reasonability, I guess, in his reactions. I just want to know how you thought this episode was going to go. Not like this. That's for (laughs) goddamn sure. Not like this. I, I had no expectations and still, and still... My expectations are rocked. Like, I... What is this? Just when you think I've already, like, pulled out all the stops and, like, thrown every curveball, I just throw another one. And it killed... This man is walking around! Right now! Like, he's alive and he's out there! Who the hell knows what he's doing? Something weird. Something (laughs) fucked up. (laughs) Something weird. I, I don't think... I think... We should send him to Heck, where he belongs. <laughs> Is that the Southern Heck? Yeah. Okay. Do you want to hear what Jim's defense was? No, but yes. Okay. See, see if it changes your opinion of him. Oh, okay. So Jim's defense consisted of a few things. First, Jim actually passed his initial polygraph test. Okay, but that doesn't surprise me if he's a sociopath. So we've talked about this before. Polygraph tests, they're not even admissible in court, and they yeah. haven't been since 1991. Yeah. They're kind of bunk. It works probably a teeny bit of the time, and even then, it's not a lot of good information. Okay, but this is... I found this out after I wrote... Like, I wrote the whole episode, and then I found this tiny bit of information after the fact, and it made me laugh so hard. The police didn't actually ask Jim to take a polygraph test. What? A month after Jane's death, he volunteered to give a polygraph test. <laughs> like, to take one. I, I believe that. That is so fucking dangerous and deranged. Did anyone ever check his computers? Like, was that a thing in the early 90s? Were they, like, looking at your search results and what you had been researching and reading online? Like, I assume so, but I didn't see anything about it. But also, when you get these tech-savvy guys, like, the same thing happened in the Susan Powell case. Mm -hmm. Josh Powell was super tech-savvy. He essentially left an untraceable trail, like, because he used all sorts of encryptions and password protections. And so they couldn't, they got a little bit from times that he messed up, but for the most part, they couldn't convict him because he was so good at hiding what he was doing on his computers. Yeah, that's true. I just, I'm like, what? there's got to be, this guy isn't the best around. There's got to be somebody who can crack it. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I just have like uh Nobody's better than Jim. <laughs> he can defuse your bombs. <laughs> you need your bombs defused? I know a guy. But do you want to hear what the polygraph test questions were? Yes. So he got, he passed with flying colors. He got all of them. It says that he wasn't deceptive at all. Okay. Question one was, did you physically do anything to cause the death of Jane Newman on November 22nd? Okay. Why did they ask the date? Yeah. See, the more specific the question, the easier it is to lie. Yeah. Because maybe he didn't that day. (laughs) Yeah. He can confidently say no. He rigged everything the day before. (laughs) 
Question two was, on November 22nd, did you shoot Jane? And you said no. Number three says, prior to finding her on November 22nd, did you know that she was going to commit suicide? Which, if he murdered her, then this question he could answer Very confidently, yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because, no, she wasn't going to commit suicide. I was going to murder her. Yeah. Number four, are you now withholding any information about how Jane obtained that gun? That's a stupid question, too. Like, sure, it would be nice to know, but what? That's well, you could lie about it if she never obtained the gun. He Exactly. Did, right? It's a bad polygraph question. Number five, before November 22nd, did you ever see that gun? I, I just don't understand. See, now this is where I didn't even, I assumed while researching the case that this was a gun that they already owned and mm-hmm. maybe belonged to him. But based on this and Jim's testimonies and the family's testimonies, they were not gun people. Like, they didn't have a any reason to own a gun. Um, as far as we know, they didn't own a gun. And Jim claims that he had never seen this gun before that he found on his laundry room floor. It came out of nowhere. Okay, well, I don't believe that. I believe that Jim bought it at some point. Yeah, and they looked into that and they couldn't find any kind of record of the gun being purchased. And question six was, are you now lying about how you say you got rid of that gun on November 22nd? I don't know. I don't see how that's relevant. It's not as important as a different question they could have asked. But that's a question that I would want the police to ask, but not a polygraph, I guess. I don't know. I'm feeling critical of all of these stupid ass questions because the first three are so fucking dumb. <laughs> well, and that's why we also get the witnesses, the the testimonies of Jim's co-workers. Mm-hmm. So Jim's co-workers confirm that they saw him at the office that day, but they described it as we saw him off and on. Strange. Which, I mean, I would say the same thing about some of my coworkers, probably. Like, people from other departments. I'd be like, yeah, I saw them a couple of times. They were obviously at work, but if they had left, I wouldn't have known. He was an IT guy? Yeah. Is there any, like, indication of what that would look like? Like, does he work in a room with other people around? Is it a cubicle? Is it a big room? Is it his own office? If it's anything like where I work, there's literally just one IT guy and he like, his office is just a closet like down the hall. What was his company? It was called MedSource. It it supplied medical supplies or distributed medical supplies. Okay. So it wasn't like a tech company. He was probably He was probably few. the IT guy. Yeah. Because usually there's only like one. Because I work for a big company. We have one. We have one IT guy. <laughs> It makes sense that people wouldn't see him all the time then, because he's probably in his own office. Yeah, and who knows if he's got a window. Yeah. Or how easy it'd be to just walk out. It's probably a larger building. Yeah, he just goes on his lunch break, and nobody thinks twice about it, right? Yeah. So I don't know the specifics of what his office setup was like, but we know from his coworkers, he was there that day. And the police pull the phone records, and the phone records indicate that his office number called his landline like at his house Mm -hmm. so someone in his office was calling his home phone and it dialed 10 times after he says that him and jane had talked for the last time that day about the garage door which is in harmony with his earlier statements which is that he said jane never called him back and so he kept calling the house and listening in trying to hear her and he didn't hear the gunshot he didn't hear her hammering in the walls he didn't hear her moving stuff around i also do do his phone records line up with when she supposedly called him earlier in the day yes okay 
I'm going to get back to the phones because I have a theory. Okay. So another part of Jim's defense was to then call Jane's mental stability into question. So they felt like if we can tear down her credibility and paint her in a bad light, then people will be like, oh, yeah, she probably did commit suicide, right? So he reiterates that she struggled with bulimia. She had general anxiety and depression. But then he made a very surprising claim, which is that Jane heard voices. What? Her parents had never heard this. They didn't know anything about this. But Jim's defense team calls a pastor to the stand. His name is Pastor Stephen Cornelius. And this is the pastor that actually married them. Mm -hmm. And he also provided them with premarital counseling. And Pastor Cornelius said that Jane came to him and told him that the voices she heard would prompt her to think and say things that she knew were wrong. He also indicated that he gave her counseling about the voices and encouraged her to implement some meditation and prayer to counter them. Okay, I have big opinions on this. Sometimes when you go to a church, the way that it's framed when you have questions about something or concerns about something, whether it's like doctrinally or religiously or anything like that, it's framed as like the devil is trying to get you to leave God or the church, right? And they frame it as if it's the voice of the devil talking to you, right? Or the voice of the adversary talking to you. And so when I was working through my own religious stuff and I talked to religious leaders for help, I also framed it that way because that's the way I was taught to understand it. Like I'm trying to be led astray right now. And I'm listening to all of the voices in my head telling me to think this about certain situations. Or like, I even know somebody pretty close to me who was also struggling with some questions about their religious stuff. And they framed it as if they had a devil on their shoulder whispering in their ear, mm -hmm. right? That somebody was like talking to them in their ear, trying to like get them to ask all these questions. When in reality, it's your own conscience and it's your own brain asking these questions. If you're just raised in a certain mindset in a certain way, you're, you're just taught to see those questions as attacks, which makes you want to separate it from yourself in a way. Like your brain is trying to protect itself by putting those thoughts that scare you on the bad guy that already exists in your worldview, which is the devil for a lot of religious people. So we don't know. We don't know if she was suffering from schizophrenia or something. Actually, if she was actually hearing voices like audibly or it was just like she was having bad thoughts about herself and she went to a counselor, which yeah. was actually a pastor. Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest reasons, in addition to the gunshot wound, the reason that investigators believed that it was a suicide is because Jane doesn't really have any kind of other wounds on her body that would indicate any kind of a struggle. She didn't have any defensive wounds that you might expect to see if she had been under duress and that, like, if she had fought someone. The only thing that they found at the crime scene was that there was a lampshade in the room that was found tilted, so that could possibly suggest a struggle. And then one of her earrings was found bent and lying in the corner of the room. So somehow her earring came out, and they don't really know why. I mean, she shot herself in the face. It could be that. It could have come off and then Jim could have stepped on it while he was walking around the room even. They specify, though, that there was no damage to that earlobe. Oh, that is interesting then. So, like, what would have caused it to come? Like, it wasn't ripped. Like, someone didn't grab it and rip it off of her. It just fell out. So they're saying maybe there was a struggle. She was tussling with someone in it. Someone had her in a headlock. You know, something like that where it came yeah. out. 
Did they do a blood toxicology report? There were no drugs in her system. Or at least they specifically said nothing that would have put her in a state to unknowingly do this, I guess. But they wouldn't even be able to tell if she had like head trauma before this, right? Because her head was blown off. Exactly. So if somebody hit her in the head and then positioned her body... I had the exact same thought, actually, because when people think of defensive wounds, they said, well, she didn't have any skin under her fingernails. She actually had just recently gone to her hairdresser a few days before this. Her like her hair was freshly done. Her nails, her manicure was like completely flawless. Mm-hmm. No other bruising on her body, right? So they kind of surmised, well, it doesn't seem like she got into an altercation with someone. But then I thought, same thing as you... But her head is missing. Yeah. If someone had overpowered her after hitting her in the head, all of that evidence would be destroyed after her skull is blown wide open. Yeah. With with the mechanical details of how the gun was set up, if I'm assuming that Jim did it, I am also more than willing to assume that he did something tricky to make it... <sighs> something tricky. I hate that I said that. Um, but that he manipulated her body to also fit into what? he said happened yeah you're never gonna guess what happens next oh my god no it's actually it's okay so (gasps) what else (laughs) i want to be like jim's actually her brother (laughs) (laughs) you would be nah no i'd be devastated (laughs) on another level what is happening So ultimately, after seven days of testimonies and six hours of deliberation, the jury unanimously voted that yes, Jane Newman was indeed a victim of homicide, and yes, her husband Jim was responsible for her death. Too bad it was just a civil trial. Jim is legally recognized as liable for her death, Mm -hmm. um, but that just means that he has to pay money to his son's estate. But I want to outline specifically what the jury stated was the reasoning for their verdict. So let's talk about how the jury concluded that, one, Jim was responsible for Jane's death and that it was a homicide. Their first point of reasoning was that there was significant evidence that Newman had a financial motive to kill Jane. Mm -hmm. Newman testified that he and Jane had approximately $45,000 in debt in addition to their $125,000 mortgage. In the 90-day period before Jane's death, the couple consulted with a bankruptcy attorney to determine whether to file for bankruptcy, and they decided not to file. Essentially, the jury concludes, like, yes, he had significant financial motive to kill Jane. The life insurance policy he collected was $116,000, which would have covered a big chunk of that. Mm -hmm. And then they also factored in the fact that the suicide exclusion for the policy had just expired four days previously. And that didn't seem like a coincidence. Yeah. The jury also heard evidence that suggested that Newman found his wife burdensome. Oh, Newman testified that before Jane's death, he told his coworker, a woman named Diane, that Jane was emotionally unstable and needed his caregiving and emotional support. Jim's boss said that Newman told him that he had to do the housekeeping and cooking, take care of Jonathan, and provide emotional support, which all just sound like normal expectations. They were both working full-time. Was he expecting her to work full-time and take on those duties? as well? Like, that that he wouldn't have to also participate in those? I'm gonna go out on a limb and say yes, because something else that I haven't mentioned is that Jane just barely recently, like, 
the week of that this happened, got permission from her job to reduce her hours because she wanted to spend more time at home. Probably because Jim was like, hey, I don't want to be doing all this cooking and cleaning. I don't want to be taking care of Jonathan. Complaining that he had to participate in the household that he fucking lives in. One of Newman's co-workers who knew both of them, Jim and Jane, testified, The overall impression I had, not just on one occasion, but on several occasions, was that Jim was dismissive of his wife. She seemed to be some sort of baggage to him that he had to carry around. Sad. Yeah. It sounds like he was just emotionally unavailable and any type of emotional needs would have been burdensome to him. Yeah. With respect to opportunity, so they've kind of established motive, right? Say financially, he had motive. He saw his wife as a burden, so there was motive to get rid of her. But regarding opportunity, the jury heard evidence that the medical examiner originally determined that her time of death was somewhere between 3 and 6 p.m., Mm-hmm. But then they find out that the medical examiner explained that he actually was not allowed into the house to examine the body until 5.30 the next morning. What? <laughs> um, Why not? Because he wasn't allowed in the house until after physical evidence such as hair fibers were collected. Okay, so then there's a huge discrepancy there. Essentially, her time of death is up in the air. That makes me so angry because then did Jim's story have an influence on what the medical examiner said? Yes. So he heard Jim's story and said, okay, well, Jim discovered the body around this time. So that means she should have died around these times. And that's what he put in the official report. Yes. What in the fuck? How is that allowed? Literally, how is that allowed? I mean, if you had been on that jury, they came to the same conclusion. So they're like, we, if they're like, right now, everything is based on Jim's account. And we already know that he's not trustworthy. Just wow. Yeah. And then on top of this, jurors expressly stated that they felt like investigators jumped to the conclusion of suicide too quickly based Pretty much entirely on the fact that it was an intraoral gunshot wound when, in their opinion, they felt like someone else could have perpetrated the same crime and made it look like a suicide. Right. Like, if we're going to accept the potential reality that she maneuvered this really risky rig to pull the trigger, then why can't we also accept the possibility that somebody manipulated her body to shoot her that it wasn't suicide like that exactly like they're both equally they're not both equally insane one is far more insane than the other (laughs) and we accepted the far more insane one as as the reality of the situation based on some man's word alone that's it okay this is one of my favorite parts though so one of the jurors turned out to be a really avid fisherman This juror explains during a deliberation that fishing line is actually incredibly slippery. Mm -hmm. And it's really difficult to just pull on. Yeah. So he says the story of someone just reaching, grabbing the fishing line and pulling it with enough force and strength and tension to fire a gun. He said in order for that to even work, you would have had to have wrapped the fishing line around your fingers. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Which he says couldn't have happened to Jane because in her post-mortem exam, her hands were immaculate. Yep. And if her, if the fishing line had been wrapped around her fingers as she pulled the trigger, the gun would have gone off. It literally not blew her backwards and there would have been severe damage to her fingers. Yeah. Dude. The, this is why, uh, okay, another reason why investigators drop the ball. Like, what? I don't care that there's no, like physical evidence to corroborate (laughs) in quotations physical evidence like you need that there (laughs) 
I, there's so much circumstantial evidence and it is not unheard of to look more into circumstantial evidence. Like I, I just feel like there is physical evidence if we paid more attention to the circumstantial evidence, if that makes sense at all. It makes yeah. sense in my brain, but I will never get over how we just accepted this as just the reality of the situation. So this juror's testimony about fishing line and how it would have had to have been wrapped around her fingers, the other juror's like, yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. And mm-hmm. so that was one of the nails that, that was one of the nails that, how do you say that? It nails nailed in the, the coffin, coffin shut? Yeah. <laughs> The last straw, the final nail in the coffin. I yes. don't know. So that was kind of the, yeah, the final nail in the coffin where they're like, they already were like, no, this guy did it, but we can't put our finger on it. And then they looked at the autopsy pictures of her hands and her hands were in perfect condition. And there's just no way. That was all their reasoning. And so Jim is found liable for Jane's wrongful death and the judgment required him to pay his son, Jonathan, $482,000, wait, $482,903.26. But as mentioned previously, however, this was only a civil suit. And so this, the standards for finding someone liable are different yeah. than in a criminal trial. So although Jim was found reasonably responsible for his wife's death, he was not criminally charged and no one has ever served jail time for Jane's death. Interestingly, though, after the civil case concluded, Jane's death certificate has been officially changed and her manner of death is listed as homicide and not suicide. They put his new wife on the stand. Mm-hmm. And there's a clip that I didn't include where they basically are just getting a witness testimony and she's completely brainwashed. She's like, my husband is the greatest thing in the whole world. I love. And without even thinking, they said, you love him. And she says, I love him to death. (laughs) And I was watching it and I saw her eye like twitch right after she said it. (laughs) That's terrifying. Actually. Yes. That's legitimately terrifying. Like, (laughs) Remember how I told you that he was tech savvy and he had like his phone line rigged so that he could call and listen to the house? Yeah. What if Jim snuck out of work that day and he planned to go to his house and lay in wait until his wife got home from work? And after he killed her right about 3.15, 3.30 when she got home from the store, because she still got her coat on, right? Yeah. He kills her immediately, and then he proceeds to make a phone call from their house to his office so that the phone records would make it look like she called him and that they spoke to each other. Yes. Because his entire alibi of him being at work was based on coworkers, which said that, who all said that they saw him off and on. Yep. But there's no concrete evidence that he actually was in his office at 3.30 except the phone records. Yep. I think you're right on the money with that. And then... He races back to the office or, yeah, my theory is that he raced back to the office on his way to the office, discards the gun somewhere. Yep. When he gets back to the office, he calls the home phone to make it look like, oh, he's been at the office and now he's calling because he's concerned about his wife. So it looks like he's been at the office that whole time, but we don't really know that. Yep. I I think you're right about that. I think that's absolutely possible. Because if he did all of that on his way back to work and not that evening, then he could have just come home. Maybe he moved a couple of things or like re-examined like, okay, does this look all right? Does this look like a murder? Yeah. And then, because then, yeah, 25 minutes and then he calls the police. Yep. 
instead of saying, oh, yeah, I got home and I broke in the door and I destroyed the suicide note and I drove out to the bridge. Yep. I think the timeline has shifted. So I think everything occurred a couple of hours before he claims it did. I agree. I cannot believe that he's out and about walking, walking around. That is insane. Should I sign us off? Thank you for ruining my day. This was great. Thank you. (laughs) I do this like every time we record. I'm like, okay, Kayla, you ready to be angry and have your day ruined? And every time I say yes. Why do I say yes? I don't know. I have self-harm tendencies, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, thanks for tuning in for this week's episode of Crime Soup Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's story. Be sure to find us on social media and let us know your thoughts and theories. For real, like, I really want to hear your theories. We're on YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We also have an awesome website, which is crimesouppodcast.com, where you can listen to all of our episodes and even buy your very own Crime Soup merch. As always, we'll see you next Tuesday. Stay safe and bon appetit. 